This is where it begins. The dust, the earth, the soil. The garden starts here. And this is the key to everything. The soil has to be just right. But even soil isn't dead. Soil is teeming with life. Soil is itself a living thing, moving, changing, and growing. It needs air and water, nutrients, and cultivation. For the soil to thrive, to be alive, we need a gardener. This is even where we begin as human beings, image bearers of the God of the universe. He made everything. He made the garden. He made us from the soil, the earth, the dust. Then the very first thing he tells us to do is to tend the garden, to cultivate it, to keep it. There's a tree we are not to eat from, but even that tree is part of the garden. It is to be kept and cultivated as well. All of the garden is to be cared for by the man and the woman. They are the gardeners and God is with them. And the garden is a delight. A seed, a sprout, a plant, a garden. A garden provides, it brings beauty. It is beauty, it is life. Life began in the garden with God at the center, but sin entered the world. And as a result, humanity was exiled from the garden. Our life-giving source of connection was broken. The blessings of God gave way to the curse and our hearts became dry and desolate like a valley of dry bones. But God has brought springs of living water into that death and desolation to bring blessing to what was cursed and bring what was dying back to life. This desolate land has become like the Garden of Eden. God has planted what was desolate. You will be like a well-watered garden. How did God do that? How did the dry bones become alive again? How did the dry branches bear fruit again? It happened in another garden. In this garden, the giver of life was offered and crushed to bring the soil back to life. In a garden, there must be death to create life. The soil is enriched by the death of plants and animals as they return to the soil and allow new life to spring forth in all of its richness and diversity. And in the same place where the Son of God was crucified, there was a garden. And in that garden was a tomb. And what was dead was placed in the tomb. But that death did not become dust. That death did not become fallow. That death did not remain. Jesus arose in power and victory and strength. But then he walked in the garden like God with Adam in Eden. He was mistaken to be the gardener. It was no mistake. He was the new Adam, but he is God himself. He restored and renewed the garden and he is making all things new. Amen.
God is making all things new. Everything God is making new. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, we are all renewed. We are made complete. We are made whole. And we have this sense of, of perfection and wholeness because of what God has done for us. But what we have to do is we have to take ourselves back into the people of the first century, these early disciples, and what was going on in their minds and in their hearts right here in this moment. Because God does give us hope in the darkest and most chaotic times, kind of some of what we've experienced in this world this year. But for them, everything that they had placed their hope in, everything that they had, they had left, their families, their jobs, everything behind to follow Jesus, the one that is supposed to be their rescuer, their healer, the anointed one, the Messiah, their new deliverer. And now he's just dead. He's dead. He's gone. All their hope is just lost and destroyed. Everything they've committed themselves to is just seemingly over. And so they're filled with fear and confusion and they're hiding out and wondering what's going on. Like, what have we, have we wasted all of this time? And then they come back to the garden. And it's like, okay, well, why? Why did they go to this garden? Well, we see it here in the scriptures in John 19, 40 to 42. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn there to John 19. We'll be in John 19 and 20. If you have a device, you can check it out there or you can just listen. That's fine as well. But John 19, 40, Jesus is just died upon the cross. And then it says, following Jewish burial custom, they wrapped Jesus' body with the spices in long sheets of linen cloth. The place of crucifixion was near a garden where there was a new tomb never used before. And so because it was the day of preparation for the Jewish Passover, and since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Maybe you don't know. Maybe you sort of never really struck you that the place of the crucifixion was near a garden, and the place of the tomb was near the very same garden. It was all right there in that same location. If you go to Israel today, there's two places. There's two places where they kind of debate and think, like, which one is the one where the actual tomb of Christ was? One is, like, got all these big churches that are all built over it with hundreds of years of tradition and all the ornaments of that. And it kind of, it doesn't feel right, but it's actually, they've probably got it historically accurate in that spot. There's another spot that's just really, really close by, and it looks like this. And it's called the Garden Tomb, and it's like they've got some good thoughts about why they think it could be there. But this place, for, for sure, just feels, feels the part. It feels right. And when you go there, you see this empty tomb that's dug out of this stone or out of this rock wall. Nearby is this actual, like, kind of cliff face, this, this face of a, of a cliff that looks like the face of a skull, Golgotha. And then in the middle of all of it, if you kind of turn the camera around from this shot, you see it's all just this lush, beautiful garden. And so it kind of just helps you to see, like, maybe this is what it could have been like. That this place where this, this horrible thing, the, the crucifixion happened, where this torturous event happens, is in this place that's beautiful. It's in a garden. 
and the place where Jesus arose is in a garden. The very next verse that we'll see, John 20, verse 1, says this. Early on Sunday morning. That's where we are right now. Sunday morning. You came to that 1030 service, so not so early. But you know, it's fine. It still counts. Uh, but early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. This is it. This verse is the Easter story. Early on Sunday morning, the stone was rolled away. Jesus is alive. But Mary's not totally sure. She's not really understanding what is happening. She knows when Jesus was placed in this tomb, he was all wrapped up and they put this huge stone, they rolled it over the entrance and there was a Roman guard outside keeping watch over this. And so then you, you get where Mary then takes off and she goes and gets a couple of the guys. She goes and grabs Peter and John, some of these core disciples, and they take off and they run to get to the tomb. And they look inside and we get to verse 6 and 7 where it says, Then Simon Peter arrived, went inside, and he also noticed the linen wrappings lying there. While the cloth that had covered Jesus' head was folded up and lying apart from the other wrappings. So nobody had just come and dragged the body away and you know, these Roman soldiers are guarding it. They're just gone. And so this stone, like people couldn't just move this stone by themselves. What's going on here, Mary's thinking. But then she looks in and sees when Jesus comes back to life. I mean, he, he makes the bed, all right? He comes out of the linen wrappings and he folds them up nice and neat and puts them next to it, you know, puts them on those spots where they were. And then he walks right on out of that grave. But uh, <laughs> so the guys, <laughs> the guys here, they take off and they're kind of just like confused. They kind of get it. They kind of don't. Mary is definitely still not getting it. And we get back to Mary Magdalene here in verse 11. It says, Mary was standing outside the tomb crying. And as she wept, she stooped and looked in. She saw two white robed angels, one sitting at the head and the other at the foot of the place where the body of Jesus had been lying. Dear woman, why are you crying? The angels asked her. I still don't think she even gets it. They're angels. She's just like, because they've taken away my Lord, she replied, and I don't know where they put him. She turned to leave and saw someone standing there. It was Jesus, but she didn't recognize him. Dear woman, why are you crying? Jesus asked her. Who are you looking for? She thought he was the gardener. Sir, she said, if you've taken him away, tell me where you've put him, and I will go and get him. Mary, Jesus says. And as he says her name, she realizes who he is. And she cries out, Rabboni, teacher. And she clings to him. I want to so bad. I want to hear the tone of his voice in this moment. That's why I want this, like, I've always talked about, I want this DVR when we get to heaven someday where I've got all of it. You know, we can watch all of these stories and we can see and all the stories that aren't included, right? And we can watch all of it. I want to hear the tone of his voice where what was it like? Was it just like Mary? Or was it like Mary? It's me, you know? Or was it like movie trailer, Mary? No, I don't, I don't think so. But like, I think it was this voice of love. It was just Mary. 
And she realizes it's him and she loves him. And all that hope that was lost and shattered is just instantly restored. It's all restored. It's all revived again because Jesus is alive. He's not dead. He is the real Messiah. He is the one that we should place our hopes in. And he has fully realized these hopes in this moment. And so for us to remember that and to think about that, and I want you to hear the voice of Jesus saying your name today. What does that sound like? in your ears. Imagine it. Imagine Jesus saying your name. I hear him say, Eric. That he loves you in that same way he loves Mary. And maybe as you hear him say your name to you today, you will have your eyes opened and realize maybe you have seen him for something different than who he really is. I don't know how you're coming into this room today and like kind of everything you're coming with and what you believe or what you think about Jesus and maybe you think he's just a great, a great man of ethics and morality that gave a great example to follow or a person that started a religion. I don't know what you think, but I want you to see Jesus today for who he really is. God himself in the flesh who died for the sins of the world, but on the third day he rose again in victory, in victory. But before we get there, let's Let's talk a little bit about this whole thing of the gardener. So she, she thinks he's the gardener. And John, the, the author of this gospel that we're reading through, this account of the life of Jesus, that for him to include this detail is kind of interesting. It's especially interesting in light of John 21, 25. In my paper Bible here, it's just one page over from John 20. And the very last verse of his whole account, John 21, 25, says this. Jesus also did many other things. If they were all written down, I suppose the whole world could not contain the books that would be written. I love that verse. I think that's awesome. There's a lot of available content. Imagine how much content was available for John to write about. And the fact that he chooses these things, it has to be for a very specific and deliberate reason. And so he includes this very like specific kind of random detail of she thought he was the gardener. Now, why? I want you to get your head a little bit into, <coughs> excuse me, the mindset of this, this first century Jewish person, this Jewish person that would be listening to this or reading this account and what would happen for them. Because realizing for them, they have spent their life studying, going to school regularly, Bible school every day to learn about the, especially the Torah, the first five books of our Bible. And even, you know, it's even said that most people had this memorized, having all of that memorized. So imagine even the worst of the students, the worst of those probably at least got through the first three chapters of the first book of Genesis, okay? So everybody's got this like ingrained in their mind. Maybe even you, maybe you've tried to do some like Bible reading plans. You've had goals of reading the whole Bible in a year and maybe you've even failed and that's all right, but you probably at least got through the first few chapters. So maybe you've done the first few 
few chapters of Genesis a ton of times more than you've read other parts of the Bible because you've gotten into it. And then, you know, we tend to get to the genealogies and then the long, like, the long lists of stuff. And we sort of have a harder time. But I, we know these first few books, but especially this Jewish listener would know when they hear this, she thought he was the gardener. It would take them back instantly to the Garden of Eden. Genesis 1, 2, and 3, the Garden of Eden. God creating the universe, creating man and, and woman, and then the very first thing he does is he plants a garden. It's the first thing God does is he plants a garden. And he creates this amazing, beautiful garden, and he fills it with many, many, many beautiful trees, some that are just there for looks, some that are there for food, and then there's a couple important trees. A couple important trees. One is the tree of life, the tree of life where they were allowed to eat from that tree, and as long as they did eat the fruit of that tree, they would live forever. So totally allowed to eat that tree, that's fine. But there was one tree, God said, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You cannot eat from that tree or you will surely die. Now, while they were there, while the man and woman are there in this garden, that is where there is this shalom, this Hebrew word for peace that's so much more than just the absence of conflict. This is all about this intimacy with God, contentment, wholeness, this perfection. Everything is right in the world. See, we have these four primary relationships in our life, okay? And everyone does. Four primary relationships. There's a relationship with God, a relationship with ourself, a relationship with others, and then a relationship with our creation. In the Garden of Eden, all four of these relationships are perfect and whole and are at perfect peace. So there's this sense that everything is right in all of these relationships. Now, then what happens is sin enters the picture. There's this command that I just said about where they can't eat from this tree. One thing. There's one thing you can't do. There's one possible way to sin. And the consequence of that sin, it says, is death. So from the very beginning, even before they commit the sin, death and sin are linked. With sin comes death. They'll be banished from the garden and they will no longer be able to eat from the tree of life. And so death enters the world. Now, right there, and that's when everything begins to change. Everything begins to be broken as death and sin are linked. There is like this perfect wholeness in these relationships. But then what we read is when we see even in Genesis 3, 1 through 13, what starts to happen is you see the way they talk in the first several verses is it's just we, we, everything's we. We aren't supposed to do this. We will do that. We, there's this togetherness. And it also says that they were naked and they were unashamed. So there's no shame. There's no blame. There's just this wholeness and unity and oneness with God. Now, Genesis then 3 verse 7 says this. At, this is right after they, find, they eat the fruit. At that moment, their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Then the Lord God called to the man, where are you? And you'll see it shift here. It goes from we, we, we. Now it goes, he replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. 
Who told you you were naked, the Lord God asked. Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? The man replied, it was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit and I ate it. Then the Lord God asked the woman, what have you done? The serpent deceived me, she replied. That's why I ate it. And so you see everything changing from this plural to singular, this we to just I, this focus on self, a self-centered perspective of everything. And what we have then are these four relationships being broken because of sin. Because of sin, these four relationships are, are broken, are broken with creation. That now we live in a world where there's a curse upon the ground itself because of sin. We are broken. Our relationship with others is broken. Right away, you see, they begin to blame each other. They blame each other. They blame the serpent. They blame God. Blame enters the picture at this point. Relationship with self is broken. Shame enters the picture because of sin. They, they are naked and ashamed now. And then, most importantly, relationship with God is broken because of sin. That this intimacy with God, this walking uh, with God, walking with them in the garden, this is broken now and they are banished from the garden as death and sin are linked together. And so now we recognize that we need to be delivered. The people of Israel recognize they need to be delivered. They even, we even see in their story, as their story goes on, the people of Israel end up in, in slavery. They're in bondage to the Egyptians and they're in that bondage for hundreds of years. And so they cry out to God, God, send us a deliverer. Rescue us, Lord. And so God, through his mighty wonders and these great miracles and judgments upon the Egyptians, rescues his people and takes them out of slavery. They go out, they wander in the desert for a time until they ultimately enter the promised land that God has for them. And still that story continues because we as the people of God are in bondage and slaved to sin. We are, in this, we are in chains because of our sin. And so we cry out for a rescuer, for a deliverer. And that is what Jesus comes to do. To be the deliverer, not just from slavery to Egyptians or from some sort of Roman occupation or some sort of thing that's in our temporal world here, but it is a freedom from sin and death forever. And so Jesus does that work through his death upon the cross and through his resurrection from that garden tomb as he comes out. He wins that victory. And so that Jewish listener, when they are listening to that story and they hear all of this about the garden where sin and death were linked in that first garden of Eden, we see here now sin and death are defeated in the garden tomb. And it is truly finished. The victory is won. That God is making these relationships whole again. God is making all things new. That's what God does. God is making all things new. And what I want you to hear is that God isn't just making some things new. God's making all things new. He's not even just forgiving your sin. He is doing that, but he's doing more than that. Our salvation is actually a beginning of a journey, not the end. 
So what I want you to understand is that God is about the restoration of all things. When he comes out of this grave, he wins the victory to restore all things, all those relationships that what was broken in creation is now restored. What was broken in our relationship with others is now made whole. What's broken in our relationship with ourselves, that shame, he is coming and he will remove that and get rid of that. And most importantly of all, God is restoring our relationship with him from us to him that he is making a way for us through Jesus for us in our relationship with him to be restored, that no longer would we bear that consequence of sin because he took it himself, but he didn't just stay dead, he came back to life again and he defeated death. And now that shalom, that wholeness can re-enter the scene, that we are after that again, that God is renewing that and taking us toward that, that the lion will lay down by the lamb, the trees will cry out. And as he started in the Garden of Eden with this perfection, this wholeness, and it was all broken there, then we see him go to the Garden of Gethsemane where he cries out to the Father. Jesus says, Lord, please take this cup from me, but not my will, your will be done. And so Jesus willingly goes to the cross that was right there in the garden. And then he rises again from that garden tomb. But he's got another garden coming. A new garden of Eden, a garden city that we will spend eternity with him. He even says in Isaiah 58, 11, you will be like a well-watered garden. You are like a well-watered garden. God is making all things new. God is making you new. The agony is complete. Jesus has bought the ultimate victory. And when he buys that victory, when he purchases it with his blood and with his, like, with his resurrection, then what he gives to us is this garden city that we'll call it. A garden city because it is the renewed garden of Eden, but it's also a city. I want to show it to you, okay? I want you to see this. And so if you want, you can look uh, in your Bible to Revelation 21 and 22. It's literally the last two chapters of the last book of the entire Bible. And so I want you to see this. This is what God has for you. This is what God has waiting for you in the future. And to me, this is incredibly exciting. Revelation 21, verse 1, it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. So imagine this city descending from the heavens down to earth. That is this new Jerusalem, a new heaven, and a new earth where we will live with him. And it's beautiful like a bride that is dressed for her wedding day. Verse 3 says, I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. This intimacy with God, of God walking in the garden and Adam and Eve were there, that is restored. That's what it will be like again. God just walking amongst us. Verse 4, 
he will wipe every tear from their eyes. And there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. Our relationship with others and ourself, all of that shame and blame and suffering and weeping and death, all of that is done. It's gone forever. Verse 5, and the one sitting on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. And then he said to me, write this down. For what I tell you is trustworthy and true. Go down to verse 10. So he took me in the spirit to a great high mountain. And he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and sparkled like a precious stone. Like jasper as clear as crystal. The city wall was broad and high with 12 gates guarded by 12 angels. So imagine, again, it's like this renewed garden of Eden because God is there and he's restored all of these relationships. But it's also a city. It has walls and buildings and it's beautifully designed and decorated. It's the most beautiful place you could imagine. So in that, I just imagine in a city then, a city has functions and purposes and work that we will have a role to play in this new heaven, new earth that will be like doing stuff. It will be fulfilling. It's not just sitting on a cloud with a harp. It's not that kind of a thing, but it's perfect peace and fulfillment and all of that. Verse 22, I saw no temple in the city for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of sun or moon, for the glory of God illuminates the city, and the Lamb, Jesus, is its light. So Jesus lights it up. The nations will walk in its light, and the kings of the world will enter the city in all their glory. Its gates will never be closed at the end of the day, because there's no night there. And all the nations will bring their glory and honor into the city. Imagine that where all the nations, every tribe, tongue, people, group in the whole world gathered together in perfect peace and wholeness in that way. Verse 27, nothing evil will be allowed to enter, nor anyone who practices shameful idolatry and dishonesty, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. The question that should be at the tip of your tongue is this. How is my name written in the Lamb's book of life? How do I get my name in that book? I'm going to show you, okay? We're going to keep going here. You're going to see. Uh, chapter 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me a river with the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. It flowed down the center of the main street. On each side of the river, hear this, on each side of the river grew a tree of life. Garden of Eden's got that tree of life in the center of it. Here, in this new heaven, new earth, this new city that's descended upon and we get to live within, there's a river and on each side there's two trees of life growing up. And I kind of imagine them almost like growing together into the center, kind of making this big archway or something. But it's like amazing that you see this tree of life there for us that we can eat from. Verse 3, no longer will there be a curse upon anything. No curse upon creation, no curse upon the ground, no curse upon people, no curse upon any animal. It's all good for the throne of God and of the Lamb will be there and his servants will worship him. 
And then to the very end, verse 17, the spirit and the bride say, come. Let anyone who hears this say, come. Let anyone who is thirsty, come. Come. How do you get your name written in the Lamb's book of life? It's an open invitation from God right here. Let anyone who is thirsty, come. But he's calling you, so come to him. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Plain as day, super clear. If you believe in your heart Jesus is God, and that he rose from the dead, you will be saved. That's how you have your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life. It's an open invitation to come. But it's all about Jesus. Jesus is calling your name today. Do you hear him? It's all about Jesus. You have to understand, we don't get into this new Garden of Eden, this Garden City, unless the stone is rolled away. It all depends on Jesus. We don't have lions laying down by lambs and trees crying out unless the stone is rolled away. We don't have the restoration of all these relationships unless the stone is rolled away. And we don't have this intimacy with God of walking with God and that there's no crying or sorrow or pain and to eat from the tree of life unless the stone is rolled away. It's all about Jesus. And so I ask you, will you say yes to Jesus today? Will you say yes to Jesus today? There's people in this room, you've come from all sorts of different backgrounds and experiences. I don't know where you are coming from, but God says, where are you? Like he says to Adam, wherever you're coming from, will you say yes to Jesus today? That could be saying like, I've drifted, I've been away, I've been ignoring you, God, and I want to say yes to you today to live my life fully and wholly for you. It could be that you have never, you've never said yes to Jesus. And today is the day that you will say, yes, Lord, I believe that you are God. And I believe that you rose from the dead. I need your forgiveness. I want to live forever with you. If you want to do that, today is the day. Now is the time. There's no waiting. It's not necessary. Let all who are thirsty come. And so I'm going to pray with you here in a moment, but just... Even like the reason it says text garden to 97000 is like normally we might have a card or something because we want to know, because we want to help you. And we want to be with you in this. To, to be a follower of Jesus is not to just like pray a prayer on an Easter Sunday and then never show up again or never be part of a family. This is a family. We're in this together. We help each other. We help each other along the way because it's not easy. It's hard. And so part of that, why we ask you to respond is because we want to be able to be in this with you. So if you pull out your phone, if, even if everybody wants to pull out their phone and just respond to that now, to say yes to Jesus in that way, and then we'll be in touch with you to help you. But let's pray now, and I want you to be serious about how will you respond to this in this moment. Let's pray together. Lord God, we need you. And we thank you. This is an amazing story. This glimpse into this new heaven and new earth is incredible, mind-blowing. The fact that you lived 
on this earth a perfect life died and then came back to life again. Lord, that's astounding. We thank you for that. So God, we just, we all collectively say yes to you today, Lord. Yes to you for today, for tomorrow, for the days to come. And so if you're wanting to say yes to Jesus for that first time, I just want you to think about praying something like this. Jesus, I believe that you're God. And I believe that you rose again. And I just need you. I don't know what to do on my own. I need your forgiveness of my sins. I need your help. I want to live for you. Please help me to do that. And maybe even you're praying, God, I, I have drifted and I'm here today on Easter Sunday and I just, I want to get back right with you, Lord, walking with you each day. Will you help me to do that? There's no magic formula, you guys. It's just, it's just being honest with God. It's just talking to him. Just say to him whatever's on your heart. In some way, say yes to Jesus today. So, Lord, we love you and we give you this day and say, God, may you be praised. May you be glorified for what you have done. In Jesus' name.